Hi, everybody, and welcome to Macro Markets with Guggenheim Investments, where we invite leaders from our investment team to offer their analysis of the investment landscape and the economic outlook. I'm Jay Diamond, head of thought leadership for Guggenheim Investments, and I'll be hosting today. We are recording this episode on May 12, 2022. Our podcast starts with the macro and ends with the micro. We begin with a timely discussion with Matt Bush, a managing director and Guggenheim's U.S. economist. Despite taking a COVID-related pause in the first quarter, the post-pandemic economic recovery continues to roar ahead as inflation remains stubbornly high and the unemployment rate stays stubbornly low. At the May FOMC meeting, the Fed started its inflation fighting in earnest, and market volatility suggests that investors are still trying to figure out what it all means. Matt is here to help us figure it out. Also on today's podcast is Maria Giraldo, a managing director and investment strategist in the Macroeconomic and Investment Research Group. With the Fed transformation to inflation fighter well underway, all eyes are on the credit markets. Maria joined me to give us her views on fundamentals, relative value, and future prospects for credit while the Fed tightens. Finally, the head of Guggenheim's bank loan desk, Managing Director Chris Keywork, will give us an update on his sector, which remains a market favorite and a positive outlier in the fixed income universe. Let's begin with our conversation with Matt Bush. Welcome, Matt, and thanks for taking the time to chat with us today. Great to be here. Now, Matt, these are times that are trying investors' souls, and there's so much going on. The bond market arguably had its worst quarter in history, which has only continued uh, through the second quarter um, as it begins to discount the possible path of future Fed policy. Uh, But the market did get a lot more insight into what the future might look like with the FOMC announcement last week and the press conference that followed. So let's start with the FOMC statement. Uh, What did it say? And was it what you expected? So changes to the actual language of the statement were really focused on inflation. Uh, They added some language about the war in Ukraine and lockdowns in China, creating upside inflation risk and supply chain disruptions. And they also added a phrase that the committee is highly attentive to inflation. And I think this statement really shows that the Fed is firmly in inflation fighting mode and is really sensitive to the criticism that it's it's been receiving from the public, from politicians, and even from former Fed officials. Um, And so beyond changes to their description of the economy and economic situation, the Fed's decision to hike 50 basis points at the same time that they announced plans for balance sheet runoff, I think are reflective of this desire by the Fed to be seen as reacting strongly to the inflation data and be seen as inflation fighters. Um, And so given this desire to really uh, make their mark on inflation, we think that almost regardless of how the data turns out in the next few months, the Fed is going to continue to hike by 50 basis points at the next three meetings to really cement their inflation fighting credentials. And where would that get us uh, in terms of the Fed funds rate over the next three meetings? Um, So it'd be a a cumulative hike of 150 basis points, and we don't actually think they'll stop there. We think once they do these three three more rounds of 50 basis point hikes, they'll continue to hike by 25 basis points, taking the terminal Fed funds rate up to 3.5% by the middle of next year, uh, which is uh, about a percentage point above their estimate of neutral, 
But given how overheated the economy is, given how, how high inflation is, they're going to need to take rates into restricted territory. Now, uh, the press conference is becoming um, an important part of uh, monetary policy communication. Did you hear any clarifying information from uh, Chairman Powell during the press conference? I think one of the things that got the most attention in the press conference was Powell's comment that the FOMC is not actively considering 75 basis point hikes. But I think the market interpreted this wrong. A lot of the commentary I've seen portrayed this as Powell taking 75 basis point hikes completely off the table. But I think all he meant was that it's not currently being considered. Uh, we know from the past year that the Fed can and will change quickly if the data changes. So I wouldn't really read too much into the statement. And I think, you know, if inflation were to worsen, we could see 75 basis points come back on the table, although that's not our, our base case expectation. Um, and in terms of the rest of the press conference, it really just reiterated what the statement said about the Fed's resolve on inflation. Uh, Powell talked about not letting a wage price spiral develop or letting inflation expectations become unanchored which I think is pretty telling that he you know, brought those up as a possibility that the Fed needs to respond to. Um, and as Powell put it, you know, the most fundamental job for the Fed is to bring inflation down, which really shows where, they're, where their head is at right now. And cementing that inflation fighting uh, role, Powell also gave some details about how they're going to bring inflation down. Uh, fundamentally, they need to slow down the overheated economy uh, and Powell noted that there's still a lot of work to do in, in cooling all the excess demand that we're seeing and that the Fed will keep going if financial conditions are not tightening enough or if the economy is not where it needs to be to achieve their inflation goals. So overall, you know, I think the press conference was an admission of the challenging task the Fed has before them of bringing inflation down while trying to avoid a recession. Uh, but it was reassuring um, that the Fed is not in panic mode, is not going to act abruptly or try to surprise the market with his tightening campaign. Now, let's dive a little deeper into the Fed's decision. As you said, front and center for the Fed is inflation, which has been running very hot for several months now. And, and just this morning, we got uh, the latest print on CPI. Uh, and the jobs market remains very strong as well. We cannot talk about one without the other. Uh, what's your outlook for how they will trend from here? And uh, what do you think will, the, will be the Fed's reaction function going forward on these two legs of their mandate? I think for both inflation and the labor market, the, the overall takeaway is we are seeing some signs of moderation, but you know, the level of both is still too hot uh, for the Fed's comfort zone, uh, and they're going to stay in tightening mode. Um, so on the inflation front, I think there are some tentative signs of good news. Uh, you mentioned the April CPI numbers, which were stronger than expected. Um, but a lot of that upside surprise was driven by an 18% surge in airfares, and that's not going to be repeated. If we exclude some of these really volatile categories, we see core inflation really holding mostly steady. Um, or you know, some, some measures like trim mean PCE inflation, which is a, a measure Powell has cited um, quite a few times, has actually cooled from a 5 to 6% range around the turn of the year to uh, the low 3% range on a sequential basis more recently. And one reason for that is that we've seen some of the categories that were most responsible for the spike in inflation last year start to cool. Uh, and I think really the, the poster child for that is used car prices, which surged last year, but are down 6% over the last three months. 
Uh, and so these, these supply chain impacted categories should eventually improve and so take some pressure off inflation. Um, that process could be more drawn out than we originally had expected this year due to ongoing disruptions from the war in Ukraine and COVID lockdowns in China, which again, the Fed noted in their statement. You know, the other piece of the puzzle though for inflation is wage growth, which is why the Fed is so focused on this huge imbalance between demand for workers and supply of workers. Um, there was a little bit of good news there in the April jobs report. We saw some signs of the labor market cooling, uh, especially with the wage growth data, which has grown at a 3.7% annualized pace over the last three months. That's down from around 6% a few months ago. If you think about inflation uh, being a product of wage growth adjusted for productivity, you know, if we get a modest rebound in productivity growth to the one, one and a half percent area, 3.7% wage growth is not too far from where it needs to be for the Fed's 2% inflation goal. Um, so again, I'd say for both inflation and the labor market, some signs of cooling down, but only a modest cooling down, still much too overheated for the Fed. Um, and so they have more work to do to tighten financial conditions, slow down the economy, uh, and demonstrate that they're taking inflation seriously. Now, investors uh, and politicians uh, are watching the efficacy of these policy uh, strategies. How do you think the interplay between rate hikes, balance sheet reduction, and forward guidance will unfold, and how successful will they be? I think we're actually entering a period here where there's less potential for the Fed to surprise with any of those policy tools. Uh, you know, we've just gone through this, this huge period of uncertainty where the Fed really struggled to begin the process of getting policy to a more appropriate place and catch up with where the economic data was and communicate that with markets. Uh, but now that we have rate hikes underway and it's pretty well understood that we'll see 50 basis point hikes for at least the next couple of meetings, we have plans for the balance sheet also now announced. So we have that uncertainty out of the way. So some more clarity about where Fed policy is heading, I think should help calm down markets. Uh, we know from here, the Fed is determined to get to a neutral setting expeditiously, as they say. And once they get there, they'll decide how deep into restrictive territory they need to go based on how the data is evolving. And again, based on our expectation, they'll have to go about a percentage point into restrictive territory. Um, so ultimately, we do expect rates will be hiked to three and a half percent by the middle of next year. Now, uh, you didn't quite get to the answer I was hoping you'd get to, Matt, which is uh, how successful do you think the Fed will be at bringing down inflation? Where do you think inflation will be going forward? What's your timetable for that? So by the end of the year, we think core PCE inflation will be down around 4% year over year, um, which is about a one and a half percentage point moderation from current levels um, and still double the Fed's target. Um, we think inflation will slow more next year, but still be <clears throat> well above the Fed's target. And ultimately, we think it's going to take a recession to get inflation to where it needs to be. The Fed has a really difficult balancing act in trying to cool down the economy enough to bring down inflation without causing a recession. It's this idea of a so-called soft landing. Our work shows that it's very difficult to do that. And so we do expect a recession will begin by the end of next year. Uh, bringing with it higher unemployment, but also lower inflation. So to talk briefly about the recession possibilities, uh, the advance estimate for first quarter uh, GDP was negative uh, 1.4%. 
um, down from positive 6.9% uh, annualized in the fourth quarter of 21. Uh, is it too early to conclude that the recovery is over? And, uh, and talk to us a little more about your current thinking on the timing of the recession. It is too early to think the recovery is over. Um, that first quarter GDP number got a lot of attention given the, you know, the negative number, uh, but it was very misleading. Uh, we saw some big negative contributions from trade and inventories. Net exports subtracted over three percentage points from GDP growth. Uh, and that was the largest negative contribution since the late 1940s. And what that really shows is actually that domestic demand is really strong and is pulling in a lot of imports, while weakness in overseas economies has restrained export growth. And so you get this big uh, negative contribution from net exports. Really the key number to look at for underlying growth trends is what's called real final sales to private domestic purchasers which is consumption plus fixed investment. And that measure grew 3.7% annualized in the first quarter, which was actually faster than the prior two quarters and a really robust pace when you consider that long run potential growth is somewhere around one to one and a half percent. So, you know, given this underlying economic momentum, given a continued reopening of the services sector, given the stock of excess savings that consumers hold from unspent fiscal stimulus, we see a pretty good growth outlook for the next few quarters. Uh, you know, as mentioned, things start to get more difficult next year as high inflation continues to erode real incomes, as rising rates weigh on housing and business investment. Um, and as the Fed, you know, just embarks on this aggressive path to get inflation down, which they really have no choice but to do. Um, and so, you know, we see the second half of next year into early 2024 as a high probability of a recession start date. Uh, and our recession forecasting tools also confirm that's a dangerous time for the economy. Now, this is, uh, you know, an economist speaking, Matt. So uh, let's talk about what the market thinks. Um, when you look at the shifting shape of the yield curve, volatility and risk asset pricing and the strength of the dollar, what do you think market participants are telling us about their expectations? I think what we're seeing is this fundamental tension between a currently strong economy with good corporate profit growth, strong pricing power set against the Fed that's directly saying they need tighter financial conditions, meaning lower stock prices, higher credit spreads, higher interest rates in order to achieve their dual mandate goals of full employment and 2% inflation. But I think with all the tightening financial conditions that's already taken place this year, the Fed has really made a lot of progress in doing what they need to do to slow the economy and bring down inflation. Uh, and so you couple that progress already made with this more clarity on the Fed policy outlook for the next several months that I talked about. And I think markets are in a better place than they were a few months ago and have arguably priced in too much bad news given all this talk of an imminent recession, which again, we think is unlikely to start in the next few quarters and is more likely around the end of next year. Now, uh, last question, Matt, uh, you know, Fed President Bostic said, uh, talked about things that the Fed can control and can't control. Um, let's talk a little bit about exogenous forces, the things that Fed policy cannot affect, uh, but yet could have a significant impact on our economy. Things like the war in Ukraine, uh, the shutdowns in China, uh, currency values. Uh, how much is the Fed factoring these issues into their thinking and how much could they have a, an effect on, on their strategy going forward? Yeah, they're going to have a big effect. 
Um, you know, as you mentioned, the Fed doesn't have a lot of influence over these exogenous factors. And you heard Powell make this point a lot at his press conference. Um, and if we were in a more normal economic situation, if the U.S. economy weren't so overheated, they could afford to look through these supply shocks, whether it's the war in Ukraine or lockdowns in China or high commodity prices or problems at U.S. ports. Uh, they could look through these as temporary. Uh, that's typically the, the textbook response of a central bank to a supply shock. But given where we are now, given how high inflation is and the broad backlash against inflation, the Fed needs to react to these shocks in order to keep inflation expectations from becoming unanchored. Uh, the Fed you know, tends to look at core inflation, uh, but actually inflation expectations are more sensitive to food and energy prices. So when we see these supply shocks drive up food and energy, the Fed has to react to show they're serious about bringing inflation down and keep inflation expectations in check. You know, last year, the Fed's strategy was to try to wait it out, um, hope for improvement on all these supply side problems. But again, given how, how high inflation is now, how imbalanced the labor market is, the Fed has no choice but to make policy with the data they have in front of them, as Chair Powell has put it. Thanks again for your time, Matt. Uh, we really appreciate your insight. Uh, I hope you'll come and visit again with us soon. Thanks a lot, Jay. Thanks, Matt. Next up, we have Maria Giraldo, a managing director and investment strategist in our macroeconomic and investment research group. Let's listen in. Welcome, Maria, and thanks for taking the time to chat with us today. Thanks, Jay. It's uh, great being back on your podcast. Well, thanks. Uh, now, Maria, you are the firm's eyes and ears on credit. Uh, so let's begin with what you're hearing and seeing in the market. Uh, the credit markets, along with the rest of the fixed income universe, has suffered through one of the worst quarters in history, if not the worst quarter uh, in the first quarter. Just how bad was it? Yeah, so uh, this is among the worst returns in fixed income markets on record. Um, High-yield bonds are down 9.5% through the end of April. Investment-grade bonds are down 14% over the same period. And April returns alone were really poor. Uh, the high-yield market in just that month was down 3.6% on a total return basis. Invest Investment-grade was down 5.5%. So April was a pretty brutal month. Uh, which is unusual. Aprils as a calendar month are generally good for risk assets. 80% of the time over the past 20 years, April is a positive month for equities and credit. Usually spreads are tighter and that, you know, that didn't happen this time, which is a little bit unnerving. Uh, on the other hand, um, other areas of credit like bank loans, CLOs, those are performed a lot better. Uh, in April, for example, the bank loan market was up 0.2% year-to-date, the sector is up a little bit. So as a floating rate asset, uh, they've been a little more immune to what's driving the sell-off this year. Now, uh, it's, it's a lot of blood in the streets, obviously, but what, what drove this performance? Yeah, it's, it's really the rates markets that are driving most of the weakness. Uh, Bloomberg Treasury Index is down 8.5% year-to-date, and that's actually the worst performance for Treasuries over any four-month period on record that dates back to 1973, and it's according, again, to the Bloomberg data. Spreads have widened, uh, for sure, but of the 14% loss, for example, in the investment-grade market, 
only 3% of that loss is due to spreads widening. And it's actually the same for high yield. Of almost a 10% loss year to date, 3% of the loss is due to spreads widening by 100 basis points. So speaking of uh, yields and spreads, where do they stand now uh, for the sectors that we're talking about today? And just how does that compare to where we were, say, at the beginning of the year or relative to historical levels? Um, Investment-grade spreads are now about 140 basis points. That's 40 to 50 basis points wider than at the start of the year. And it's in the 60th percentile of historical observations dating back to 1994. Yields are around 4.4%, 4 to 5% for triple B bond. And one thing that is interesting context about spreads uh, is, especially you know, given that they're above the 50th percentile of where spreads usually trade. Um, I read a Bloomberg article maybe five months ago that said that right around this level is where the Fed put is. So what does that mean? Uh, well, right around 150 basis points, this, this article I read claimed uh, on investment grade corporate bond spreads is where the Fed would say, this is bad. Credit markets are in trouble. Time to turn around. Um, now we're kind of close to that level. We actually did hit that level um, a, a few weeks ago, and the Fed isn't even blinking because it's not just the level of spreads that would be a problem. It's a disorderly move in that direction. So if spreads had gone from 80 basis points to 150 basis points in a, in a matter of days, that would certainly be bad. In that scenario, we get lenders probably stepping back, borrowers waiting out the market volatility and the flow of credit, um, and money movement in general sort of stalls. Um, and then that, that can spook markets, and it just kind of takes a life of, of, on its own you know, with very little market liquidity. So we haven't had a disorderly move. Um, there was a bit of more volatility in December and January as the market priced in most of the Fed tightening cycle and pulled, pulled forward expectations of quantitative tightening. But in the last couple of months, you know, I look at spreads on a daily basis. And what do I see? I see three basis points wider, one basis point tighter, six basis points wider, you know, this day over day. That's not a cause for concern. And it, it's really how we got here. And it's the same in high yield. Spreads are about 380 basis points in the 40th percentile of historical observations. Orderly widening is what we've seen, and yields are now about 7%. Yeah, I was listening to uh, our chief investment officer for fixed income, Ann Walsh, uh, speaking at the Milken conference this week, and she said that you know the closest analog to today in terms of sell-off was uh, the 94 sell-off, um, but she said the big difference is unlike 94, which was very chaotic and uh, you know, represented by a loss of liquidity, that this market, as steep as the sell-off has been, has been quite orderly, uh, which is encouraging, I suppose, on some level. It is, yeah, and it's just it's a fascinating comparison because in 1994, I think investment grade returns were maybe down about four, four, four and a half percent. Um, at one point, I think they were down maybe 6%, but this move this year has been more than twice as bad. And so, you know, um, for uh, very seasoned investors to be 
thinking about this market as much more orderly, I think does say a lot about the backdrop and, you know, what the Fed has done in the past to support the market and what that means in this sort of widening move. Right. Right. Now, clearly the market has suffered uh, because of this, largely driven by rate moves. So what does this mean for credit quality? Uh, How does that look to you right now? Yeah, yeah, I mean, that's that's the question, right? Why are people demanding, say, 160 basis points for a triple B credit today versus just 110 basis points for triple B credit at the start of the year? Is there something wrong with credit quality? Are fundamentals deteriorating? Well, you know, I think the market is really calibrating where risk is. Eight months ago, the market was still pricing in December 2024 Fed funds at just about 1.6%. So they thought, well, if the Fed's raising interest rates, they're gonna get to 1.6% out to the end of 2024. Today, the futures market shows Fed funds at 3% by December, 2024. So that's that's actually a lot uh, lot more tightening. All else equals, that also means a higher probability that there's this pressure building for credit. And the Fed is trying to slow the economy and the spreads are widening you know, to price in uh, that risk. But setting fears of what the future may hold aside, because nobody really knows, um, credit quality right now, just on a backward-looking basis, uh, looks pretty good. Leverage is trending a bit lower. Rating migration is still broadly positive, meaning in the credit landscape, we're still seeing more upgrades than downgrades. Uh, earnings growth expectations for the S&P 500 are still about 10% for 2022. Um, and this, this is a slowdown from last year's double-digit pace, but it's well above the historical average of 8% uh, earnings per share growth uh, for, for the index. And so unless companies decide to aggressively relever right now, which I don't, I don't think is going to happen because the cost of leverage is going up, those leverage figures should continue to move a bit lower going into the end of the year. So my take on credit quality is that it looks it looks okay. You know, defaults are low, rating migration, like I said, is positive. Companies are in a state where they can weather a lot. Their balance sheets look pretty good. They have a good cash cushion. They're more disciplined. So I, I think the landscape for credit looks pretty attractive. We obviously got more granularity uh, through the lens of earnings season. Uh, did anything catch your eye there, either by sector or by industry? Yeah, I've been finding this year's earnings season especially interesting because we're getting more insight into things we can't really see from the outside, meaning how are companies managing price pressures? Is there evidence of demand destruction? How much longer are companies expecting supply chain problems to persist? And so here are the answers to those questions. Companies are passing through cost pressures, left, right, and center. We see this especially true in low-margin industries like retail. But in many cases, companies are raising prices to more than offset the increase in costs because they anticipate more cost increases ahead, especially in labor, where you know the unemployment rate is so low, uh, the pace of payroll gains is still, is still very high. So they're trying to, to get ahead of that. And what's happening with demand as those prices are going up? Well, the C-suite that generally lead these earnings calls are not seeing demand destruction. 
um, companies say they have more demand than they can deliver. You have airlines like Delta, where you know all of us are feeling the the pressure on our airfare costs. Well, they're seeing uh, record sales, uh, so so not so they're able to pass through those costs and not seeing a lot of negative impact on demand just yet. On supply chains, we saw a little bit of easing on, on supply chain problems before Russia invaded Ukraine, but now we're seeing a few more bottlenecks and we're starting to see that in some data that we, we monitor. Um, and reading through what companies are saying now, it looks like one, uh, they're still facing uh, massive inventory replenishing issues. Most of the retailers say they just don't have a lot of inventory in stock and they, they intend to continue to, to build their, those inventories. Um, and two, they expect those issues to continue for another couple of quarters. Now, these are things that are very hard to predict. Um, nobody can really predict when those supply chain bottlenecks will actually dissipate, but that just gives us a little sense of what things are looking like for them and what they can plan around in the future. Um, what else? Well, one other thing I guess I can say industry-wise, let's talk about a standout sector, which is energy. Oil and gas producers are saying that they don't want to increase production because they want to pass through more free cash flow to investors. Uh, they don't want to take the risk of increasing production, then seeing growth slow down and being stuck with more production at lower prices. You know, and why shouldn't they be worried about that? Many people are are worried that that the central banks, the Fed in particular, for you know, for raising rates and shrinking the balance sheet at the same time. They're worried that they're going to trigger some sort of financial calamity. Uh, everyone's talking about recession. Uh, go, going back to your point about the Milken Conference, so many times, so many panels talked about recession at the Milken Conference uh, when I was there. And yet, you know, they look at the oil and gas producers and are angry at them because they're not producing more. In, and it's in the face of a possible recession, of course, they're not going to do it. So out of the energy industries, you know, we're seeing great profit growth massive improvement in margins and continued reductions in leverage. Now, earlier you mentioned that uh, the leverage loan market is perhaps an anomaly in terms of performance because uh, you know, I'm sure from the inv investor's perspective, they want some floating rate exposure in, in this environment. But does, does the, the, the threat of rising rates also imply that the cost of capital is going to be rising for uh, leverage and loan issuers, and is that market at risk? Yeah, that's that's right. Um, so, you know, in terms of in terms of demand, um, you know, rising interest rates has been driving a lot of demand for leverage loans. We've seen inflows into mutual funds, um, and you know, we are also seeing the the market being pretty attractive right now because they're, they, the, the loans themselves pass through um, higher coupons as interest rates rise. Uh, the other thing is that the leveraged loan market is enjoying strong earnings growth. So a lot of the positive fundamentals that I talked about is also true for loans. Um, so you know, in terms of earnings, for example, here we measure it more on a earnings before taxes, interest, non-cash items like depreciation and amortization. And we do it that way because we want to measure their ability to actually pay interest expense. That's that's more important. And on this basis, uh, loan earnings are tracking around 10% growth year over year. Um, and that's also meaning that 
you know, given how low rates are, loan issuers are covering their annual interest expense by several multiples. So they're generating about five to six times more earnings on an annual basis than the annual interest expense they carry on their balance sheet. But to your point, interest rates are going up. And so those coupons are going to go up um, without the loan issuer doing anything else, without them taking on any more debt, they're going to have to pay more for the existing loans that they have on their balance sheet. So are loan issuers then in trouble? Well, right now they have this record coverage, interest coverage, so producing five times more in earnings than their paying an annual, annual interest expense is the highest we've seen on record. And if you look at like a double B loan, higher quality, they're generating more like eight to nine times interest coverage, which is a lot for a below investment grade issuer. That that's so much cushion right there. But you know, we think that there's a level at which short-term interest rates have to get to for you to start to see a lot more pressure on the loan market, particularly in the peripheries where you have triple C issuers with a, with only two times interest coverage. And our estimates show that that level is probably right around where the market's pricing in the peak for short-term interest rates, around 2.5 to 3%. At that level, you're probably looking at 15 to 20% of the market that have seen interest coverage erode enough that it really starts to sort of heat up um, the default risk and, and pressures on being able to continue to cover uh, that interest expense. So that's, you know, that's, that's where I think there, I don't think the leveraged loan market as a whole is at risk, um, but there are going to be sort of these peripheral areas um, that will see more pressure from two and a half percent Fed funds rate. Now, does that calculation change if we are heading into a recession and the economy is weaker? Yeah, so that calculation also assumes that you have no change in earnings uh, for issuers. Um, most most likely this year, uh, loan issuers will see another 5 to 10% earnings growth. Um, I think that's where expectations are, and that's if we're expecting a, a, you know, a GDP growth to remain above potential, we should expect that these leveraged issuers also see um, robust earnings growth. So you can see another year where interest coverage is okay because earnings are growing 5 to 10% and um, the Fed getting to right around 2% by the end of the year. But if we go into a recession, then we're looking at earnings contracting. Uh, probably to the tune of about 15 to 20% decline on a year-over-year basis, which is what we typically see in recessions in these sectors. Uh, and in that scenario, you know, you have the double whammy of paying uh, more interest expense sort of on a trailing backwards-looking basis um, and seeing your earnings take a hit. But then you also have, in a recession, you potentially have the Fed cutting interest rates. So there's always all these moving parts, uh, but you know, the if earnings go down 10 to 15 percent, even with a zero percent um, Fed funds rate, uh, I think you still, in, in that scenario, have defaults tick higher. Well, we will stay tuned to that. But let's cut to the chase here, Maria. Given the current pricing environment, credit fundamentals, expectations for Fed policy and the economic outlook, is now a time for risk on or risk off or somewhere in between? 
I think we're still in a in a risk on period, but we're we're at a point where you have to get increasingly selective. You know, it's easier to buy risk when we have the Fed injecting a lot of liquidity and growth is on an upswing and valuations are cheap. This period is much more difficult. Um, you know, valuations aren't exactly expensive nor cheap. They're kind of in the middle of historical levels. But the Fed is looking to intentionally slow the economy, and no one knows if they're going to miscalculate and topple us into a recession. So I would advise you know, investors to be patient. Uh, remember that you're investing for a full cycle, not for the next two quarters or even six quarters. And even though valuations aren't cheap, they likely compensate for risk through a full cycle. Um, so for example, through a five-year period, the average credit loss for double B bonds is only about 0.5 to maybe 1% at a very high end. Uh, that is, if you buy a double B portfolio at a 6% yield right now, over, a, over five years, we should expect you've made 5.7 to 5.8% yields, so or a little bit lower than where you're buying it to, to account for credit losses. Okay, so it's a 5.7% yield. Right now, a five-year treasury is yielding just 3%. So a 5.8% yield should look attractive to an investor that needs income. Uh, so that's, that's a through-the-cycle perspective. Um, uh, the, it, it, for, for investors who do kind of want the perspective of even shorter than that the next year or so, um, our, you know, we have a lot of tools uh, on the macro team to tell us, what, you know, where are we in the cycle? What's the probability of a recession starting in the next six months, 12 months, et cetera? And th those models are telling us right now that the, there's a higher probability of a recession starting sometime in 2024, so not in the next 12 months. And if you look at the performance of risk assets around recessions, in the penultimate year of, a, of, a, uh, of an economic expansion, so that's say 24 months before recession up, up until 12 months before recession, you typically have pretty strong performance for risk assets for that, that includes equities, high yield bonds, bank loans. They, they generally um, outperform uh, government related assets like treasuries and agency mortgage backed securities. So, you know, I think given the our views on the timeline, the likely timeline for a recession, you know, if we if 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 we Fed tightening triggers one, probably not in the next 12 months. And history says that this is still a period where you can be risk on. Well, Maria, this has been very helpful. Uh, thanks for giving us the backdrop on credit. Uh, and please come back and visit with us soon. Thanks, Jay. Thanks, Maria. Next. We have the head of Guggenheim's bank loan desk, Chris Keywork. Chris, the microphone is yours. Thanks, Jay. The bank loan market has had strong outperformance uh, on a year-to-day basis versus other asset classes, uh, notably outperforming the S&P 500 by over 15% and the Dow by over 10%. Um, while it's not completely immune to broader macro sentiment, uh, this performance has clearly been strong, um, though we have given back a, a little bit here in the start of May. Uh, we were hanging on to a slight positive return uh, finishing up April, but at this point down a modest 1% as of yesterday's close. 
You know, the floating rate nature of the product clearly makes it attractive in a rising rate environment like this. So that's contributed to that performance and has also been a driver uh, for some of the uh, stronger market specific technicals um, for bank loans, most notably inflows into uh, floating rate mutual funds and ETFs. However, there's also been some other bank debt specific technicals um, that have been and continue to be supportive. Um, there has been a generally a light primary calendar. CLO issuance, while not robust, has certainly been steady on the year. And there's also been uh, no need for accounts in general to be sellers of paper. Um, so all that supportive. The one offset to that is on these days where we see strong equity volatility, there are some bank loan ETFs or exchange traded funds that will have daily flows, whether they be redemptions or subscriptions. Um, and while these vehicles make up a small percentage of the market, probably approximately one and a half percent, if not a little bit less of the market, they do react quickly to those inflows and outflows. Um, so on days where the equity tape is getting beat up and, and there's some outflows there, even if they're coming in to sell smaller, what would historically be smaller sizes for the bank loan market, one or two or three million of, of any given name, um, when liquidity is tight on those rough days, uh, you will see that lean on things um, on levels somewhat. As we break it down, performance by, uh, by ratings on a year to day basis, um, the single B component of the market, which represents about 63% of the bank loan market, had been outperforming uh, double Bs and the triple Cs, which are a very small component of the market on a year-to-date basis. However, with the recent um, move we've seen on, on prices really just over the last week or so, um, double Bs have now slightly outperforming the their single B component. Uh, from a return perspective, double Bs are now negative 64 basis points. That compares to negative 96 basis points uh, for single Bs, so about a 32 basis point outperformance. Um, what had been driving the outperformance for single Bs was the excess coupon, but as I mentioned, um, with some price movement we've seen, notably single Bs down about 185 basis points over the last uh, month, 30 days or so, to an average bid of just over 96 and a half, where you had double Bs only off about 132 basis points to an average bid of about 97 and three quarters, um, allowing the outperformers to flip to double Bs from single Bs. While triple C's make up a very small component of the market, about 5%, I just thought it was worthwhile mentioning on a year-to-day basis the return there of negative 3.02%. Um, I'd like to talk a little bit about some of the technicals that I just mentioned at, at a high level and just dig into a, a little bit further. Um, the first being CLO issuance. Um, while certainly um, you know, lower on a year-over-year -year basis, it's important to set a baseline in that last year was a record and by far a record. So the $47 billion of year-to-date issuance we have now, if we were to not look at last year, um, it would be on pace for uh, a record issuance excluding last year. Um, so it's still, while down, still remains pretty robust. The reason this is important uh, to the bank loan market is the CLO buyer represents about 65% of the buying base uh, for bank loans. So a strong CLO environment, a new issue environment, will contribute and be a benefit to the underlying loan market itself. Um, I mentioned loan fund flows. Um, certainly seeing strong inflows on a year-to-date basis. Both the mutual funds and ETFs have seen net inflows um, on a year-to-date basis. 
Um, these flows are reported on a weekly basis. And in fact, we've only had one weekly outflow in, in 2022. The market has now strung together seven straight weeks of inflows. And the uh, formula that generally the market looks at is a four-week average, which currently sits at a positive $775 million, and now at $20.5 million of total inflows on a year-to-date basis. Um, another uh, important data point that we look at here um, is the net supply and demand uh, of the market. From a supply pers perspective, it's pretty easy to just look at the growth of the market on a year-to-day basis. Um, so far this year, I've been uh, relatively steady, up 5.6% or about $75 billion to a total size of just over $1.4 trillion. From a demand perspective, it gets a little trickier um, in that there are some numbers that are published and factual, like the CLO creation we just talked about of, of $47 billion on a year-to-day basis, and the inflows or outflows to mutual fund and ETFs, which is positive $20.5 billion. Um, so net, net, a little over $67 billion of visible demand. What that won't capture is the flows to the non-reporting accounts. So that would be SMAs or separately managed accounts. That could be insurance balance sheets and other non-traditional bank loan accounts. So our visible supply of just about 75 billion versus our visible demand of about 67 and a half billion shows the off uh, the imbalance there of about seven and a half billion. But again, number one, that's pretty small in the size of the market. Uh, number two, though, is potentially being uh, underreported, given that we don't have all the different buying accounts potentially uh, added into that figure. Another uh, important factor is the primary market. Activity has been generally on the lighter side. Uh, we started off the year pretty strong. Issuance in January was robust, um, had started to slow down a little bit in February. And then with the Ukraine invasion, we saw you know things get materially more quiet. There is a published uh, calendar of forward activity for the bank loan market. Um, adjusted, it's about $44 billion right now, though the bulk of that is in the forward section, meaning deals that have been publicly announced but are not actually in market. And they could be a quarter out, they could be two quarters out, they could be a year out, but they're just deals that have been announced, um, could be subject to regulatory approvals, could be subject to a number of things, and they're just in the forward section. That makes up 36 billion of the 44, meaning there's just 8 billion actually in market right now, which is very light. And just given the, the macro environment, I expect that to remain on the lighter side. Uh, putting numbers around it, January, like I said, robust. We had 72 billion of issuance uh, that reduced down to 24 billion in February and further contracted to 17 billion in March. Uh, we saw a little bit of a pickup in April um, to about 35 billion. Um, and we'll see how May goes, but so far remaining on the on the quieter side. Um, so in summary, you know, while the asset class will not be immune to, to broader macro sentiment, um, the floating rate nature and the typical senior placement in the capital structure for companies should continue to look attractive in, in this current environment. Uh, that's all I have. Uh, back to you, Jay. My thanks once again to Matt Bush, Maria Giraldo and Chris Keywork. And thanks to all of you who've joined us for our podcast today. I'm Jay Diamond, and we look forward to gathering again for the next episode of Macro Markets with Guggenheim Investments. In the meantime, for more of our thought leadership and videos, 
including the CIO Outlook by Scott Miner, the global CIO of Guggenheim Partners, visit guggenheiminvestments.com slash perspectives. So long. Important notices and disclosures. One basis point is equal to 0.01%. Investing involves risk, including the possible loss of principal. Stock markets can be volatile. Investments in securities of small and medium capitalization companies may involve greater risk of loss and more abrupt fluctuations in market price than investments in larger companies. The market value of fixed income securities will change in response to interest rate changes and market conditions, among other things. Investments in fixed income instruments are subject to the possibility that interest rates could rise, causing their value to decline. High-yield securities present more liquidity and credit risk than investment-grade bonds and may be subject to greater volatility. Investors in asset-backed securities, or ABS, including mortgage-backed securities, or MBS, and collateralized loan obligations, or CLOs, generally receive payments that are part interest and part return of principal. These payments may vary based on the rate loans are repaid. Some asset-backed securities may have structures that make their reaction to interest rates and other factors difficult to predict making their prices volatile, and are subject to liquidity and valuation risk. CLOs bear similar risk to investing in loans directly, such as credit, interest rate, counterparty, prepayment, liquidity and valuation risks. Loans are often below investment grade, may be unrated, and typically offer a fixed or floating interest rate. This podcast is distributed or presented for informational or educational purposes only and should not be considered a recommendation of any particular security, strategy or investment product or as investing advice of any kind. This material is not provided in a fiduciary capacity, may not be relied upon for or in connection with the making of investment decisions and does not constitute a solicitation of an offer to buy or sell securities. The content contained herein is not intended to be and should not be construed as legal or tax advice and or a legal opinion. Always consult a financial, tax and or legal professional regarding your specific situation. The opinions contained herein are subject to change without notice. Forward-looking statements, estimates and certain information contained herein are based upon proprietary and non-proprietary research and other sources. Information contained herein has been obtained from sources believed to be reliable, but are not assured as to accuracy. No part of this material may be reproduced or referred to in any form without express written permission of Guggenheim Partners LLC. There is neither representation nor warranty as to the current accuracy of nor liability for decisions based on such information. Past performance is not indicative of future results. Guggenheim Investments represents the following affiliated investment management businesses. Guggenheim Partners Investment Management LLC, Security Investors LLC, Guggenheim Funds Distributors LLC, Guggenheim Funds Investment Advisors LLC, Guggenheim Partners Advisors LLC, Guggenheim Corporate Funding LLC, Guggenheim Partners Europe Limited, Guggenheim Partners Fund Management Europe Limited, Guggenheim Partners Japan Limited, GS Gamma Advisors LLC, and Guggenheim Partners India Management.